Amen. Thank you, John. Um, We continue this morning in our sermon series for the summer called What God Wants. We're looking at the four phrases in the New Testament where the the phrase, the will of God, is this. And we come to the third one this morning, which is in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18. So I wonder what comes into your mind when you think of spirituality. What does it mean to be spiritual? Well, any number of things can come into our mind, and they can be everything from biblical Christianity to some bizarre form of uh, spirituality we might see out in the culture, in the world. Well, Paul tells us this morning, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, exactly what true spirituality is, exactly what it means to be spiritual. It's popular to say here these days, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious, or I'm spiritual, but I'm not beholden to any kind of doctrine or system of belief. Well, that's not the way the Bible thinks about spirituality. It's not the way God thinks about spirituality. It's the way we in our natural state think about spirituality. But I want to think about spirituality this morning and what it means to be truly spiritual. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. And the way that we do not quench the spirit is in part by obeying the verses that are previous to that. So the way that we don't quench the spirit or the way that we actually give, give the spirit full reign in our lives is by rejoicing always, by praying always, and by thanking always. For this is God's will in Christ Jesus. We've talked about that if we want to please God, if we want to please the spirit of God, if we want to do what God requires of us, then we have to know what his will is. And I'm so thankful that the Bible gives us explicit, clear, basic, kindergarten level instructions like this. Be happy in God, pray about everything, and be thankful. That's God's will for everybody in this room till the day you die. So we're going to take each one of those one at a time. Let's get into the first one. Rejoice always. This is how Paul begins 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16. Rejoice always. In other words, he, 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 the way it's phrased in the Greek is interesting. It's, he's saying, continually always be rejoicing. It's the first challenge that we receive. God requires all of us, as one of his commands, to be joyful. Joy is not an emotional option for certain personality types. It's an act of the will. It may feel spontaneous, but it is not passive. The fact that we're commanded to rejoice implies that it's something that we can choose to do or choose not to do. You know, it's, we, we can never just say, well, I'm just not happy. Well, you may not be happy, but you can choose to be joyful. That's the difference. We don't always feel happy, but that's not what the verse is talking about. So what does it mean that we must choose to rejoice even in the darkest and most oppressive situations in our lives. Yes, joy is not based on the situation in which we find ourselves. We can experience it even in the midst of sorrow. Now, let's, let's think through this a little bit. First of all, the presence of joy does not entail the absence of sorrow. That's very important. The presence of joy does not entail the absence of sorrow. What does Paul say to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 6.10? He says, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Or in 2 Corinthians 7, 4, he says, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. So which one is it, Paul? Are you sorrowful 
or are you rejoicing? Are you afflicted or are you abounding with joy? The answer is yes. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 9, talking about the Lord Jesus, says, God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And yet, in Isaiah 53 verse 3, we read that Jesus is a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. So which is it? If Jesus was a man of sorrows, why should we think anyone following him would be any different? He's a man of sorrows, and yet he's been anointed with the oil of gladness beyond his comparison. Jesus knew what it meant to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So rejoicing in the Lord doesn't mean that we ignore or we deny sorrow. It means that we actively choose to delight in the Lord in the midst of it. Also, while we can't make ourselves feel joyful, we can choose where we'll look to find it. While we can't control whether we feel joyful or not, we can choose where we're looking for it, right? We are always looking for delight in someone or something, even when we're filled with sorrow because we lack the chosen object of our delight. That's in part the reason we feel sorrowful. And yet... To rejoice in the Lord means that we can choose to seek our joy in him instead of someone or something else. We can continue to fix our thoughts on him and nurture our attention on him and our affection for him by reading and meditating on his word where he reveals his goodness for all to see, even as we wait to feel the joy we know we ought to feel and long to feel. Amy Carmichael famously said, Settled happiness is ours today because Christ is here. It's ours tomorrow because Christ will be there. And it's ours forever because he'll never leave us. End quote. See, when you're finding your joy in the Lord, settled happiness is yours forever. So how can we rejoice always? Well, Paul gives us a number of examples in this very letter in 1 Thessalonians when we're going to turn to a few of those examples. First of all, we rejoice in the gospel. We rejoice in the gospel. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6, where Paul says, you became imitators of us, talking about the Thessalonians, the church he's writing to, and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So you received the word, that is the gospel, and the gospel brought you joy even though it brought affliction too, because you were being persecuted for receiving it. He says again in verses 9 and 10, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That was what was bringing them great joy, even in the midst of their affliction. In chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, Paul gives us the gospel again that brings us joy when he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. If you're here this morning and you've yet to embrace Christ, I know you've heard it through Mike's testimony, but I would just encourage you as a pastor that right now, if you are not in Christ, you are under the wrath of God according to these verses. But the glorious good news of the gospel is that we can escape it. God, we can obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that we can escape 
the idolatry that so encompasses our hearts and our lives and we can wait for his son to return from heaven whom he raised from the dead because Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. May you seek deliverance from him this morning. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says that we are to rejoice in the Lord. He says it again in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice always. And again I say, rejoice. Rejoicing in the Lord means that these truths about the gospel, about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what he will do, begin to personally and profoundly affect us. Rejoicing in the Lord means knowing Jesus as our Lord, our Savior, and our treasure. It means giving him a a deep, profound, sweet, lasting trust and making him the object of our pleasure and gladness more than anything that this world has to offer. As Paul says in Philippians 3.8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. See, rejoicing in the Lord means that there's a new song in our hearts. It's the song of the redeemed, that the the sin and distresses of this life will never be able to drown out. He is the chief object of our joy. I was reminding of this this week in reading an old article that Christianity Today released um, right before the passing of Bill Bright. Hopefully you know Bill Bright's name. He was the founder of Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ. And he was being interviewed. He's been with the Lord over a decade at this point. But um, he was being interviewed and he was asked about how his physical condition was doing. And I just want to read that, an excerpt from that interview. CT, Christianity Today, asked, what's your condition? Bill said, I've lost 60% of my lung capacity and it keeps going down. One day I'll breathe my last, which is fine. I can say I've lived a pretty exciting life, but since it was announced to me that there is no cure for the disease, I've entered into a different relationship and a more wonderful intimacy with the Lord. James says to rejoice when you're having difficulties. Paul speaks of rejoicing when you suffer. I know the reality of what they're saying. Christianity Today said, but your health is declining. Bill Bright responded, but my spirit is soaring. C.T. said, do you feel you've completed the mission for which you were put on earth? Bill Bright responded, God doesn't need Bill Bright any more than he needs a twig on a tree. He created us in his image and he loves us, but he can raise up sticks and stones to worship him. So that's not, it's not as though my departure is going to leave a big hole. C.T. said, what would be your parting words to believers? Bright said, Jesus said, come unto me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. So my word to believers would be, let us awaken out of our Laodicean spirit and return to our first love, as the church at Ephesus was admonished to do, and let us share this most joyful news with everybody on the planet. What a way to go. We not only rejoice in the gospel, we rejoice in God's people This is what we see Paul doing again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Would you look at verses 17 and following? Paul says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. See, Paul takes joy in God's people as well. Paul rejoices in the Lord and he rejoices in his people. Do you? 
Do you rejoice in the church? Do you rejoice in your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you on the lookout for answers to prayer and evidences of God's grace in those around you? Surely we are. We just celebrated it. The reason that you took great joy in Mike's baptism is because you love the fact that God saved him and you love the fact that he's your brother in Christ now. And we should long for our fellow Christians' holiness and joy and their progress in the faith more than we crave anything else. We should long for them to grow deeper in their relationship with the Lord. So we rejoice in the gospel. We rejoice in God's people. Finally, we rejoice in spite of our circumstances and challenges. Remember all the challenges. It's interesting to me, in the book of Philippians, we call the book of Philippians Paul's letter of joy. And yet it's shot through with things that would make it hard to live and be happy. Let me give you a few examples. He's in jail, okay? He draws attention to the various challenges. He's, being he, he's being under, undergoing shameful treatment and conflict in prison. There's relentless labor. There are opponents that are pursuing him. He rejoiced even though there's grumbling among the Philippian church and disunity. And he's rejoicing in the Lord always, even though as he sits in prison, he's being maligned by his enemies. He's hearing reports of sin and strife among his friends. This tells us that his joy is not anchored to circumstances, but to his Savior, who will never disappoint him, and he will surely deliver him. Therefore, Christian joy is the great pleasure and happiness that we feel, whether or not the sun is shining whether or not our team is winning, whether or not we're healthy or we're hurting, because our Redeemer lives, we belong to Him, and because He's making all things new. I want to tell you another story of George Mueller. George Mueller was the uh, famous man, great man of prayer. He built orphanages in England and inspired thousands and thousands of people to lay hold of, of, on God in prayer. And in July of 1853, Lydia Mueller, who was his only child, was struck with typhoid fever. And she came to the brink of death, but through the prayers of many people, she was spared. And here's what Mueller wrote about that. Parents know what an only child, a beloved child is, and what to believing parents, an only child, a believing child must be. Well, the Father in heaven said, as it were, by this choice, are you willing to give up your child to me? My heart responded, as it seems good to you, my Heavenly Father, your will be done. But as our hearts were made willing to give back our beloved child to him who had given her to us, so he was ready to leave her to us, and she lived. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. The desires of my heart were to retain my beloved daughter, if it were the will of God, the means to retain her to be satisfied with the will of the Lord. Of all the trials of faith that as yet I have had to pass through, this was the greatest and by God's abundant mercy, I own it to his praise. I was enabled to delight myself in the will of God, for I felt perfectly sure that if the Lord took his beloved daughter, it would be the best for her parents, best for herself, and more for the glory of God than if she lived. This better part I was satisfied with, and thus my heart had peace, perfect peace, and I had not a moment's anxiety. Now, you say, that's easy. God gave his daughter back. Well, on February 6th, 1870, George Mueller's wife, Mary, died of rheumatic fever. They had been married 39 years and four months. He was 64 years old. 
And shortly after the funeral, he was strong enough to preach a funeral sermon, as he called it. Do you know what text he chose to preach at his wife's funeral? Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good and do good. He had three points to his sermon. They were, number one, the Lord was good and did good in giving her to me. Number two, the Lord was good and did did good in so long leaving her with me. And number three, the Lord was good and did good in taking her from me. Under this third point, he recounts how he prayed for her during her illness. He said, yes, my father, the times of my darling wife are in your hands. You will do the very best thing for her and for me, whether life or death. If it may be, raise her up yet again, my precious wife. You are able to do it, though she is so ill. But however you deal with me, only help me to continue to be perfectly satisfied with your holy will. And as he looked back on the way God answered this prayer, he said, Every day I see more and more how great is her loss to the orphans. Yet without an effort, my inmost soul habitually joys in the joy of that loved departed one. Her happiness gives joy to me. My dear daughter and I would not have her back were it possible to produce it by the turn of the hand. God himself has done it, and we are satisfied with him. That's, brothers and sisters, is not extraordinary for a Christian. That is rejoicing in always in the Lord. That's, what it, that's in one way what it looks like. Secondly, pray always. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, Pray without ceasing. One of the keys, you know, to rejoicing always is to pray always. They're kind of connected, right? Because if you're rejoicing in the Lord, you talk to the Lord a lot, okay? And so talking to the Lord brings about a deeper relationship with the Lord, which brings about a greater joy in the Lord. This is why the New Testament is filled with exhortations to keep praying all the time. Romans 12, 12, be constant in prayer. Ephesians 6.18, pray at all times in the spirit with perseverance. Philippians 4.6, pray about everything. Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.7, pray without ceasing. Luke 18.1, pray and don't lose heart. I mean, it's all over the New Testament. Now I know as one writer says, these three words, pray without ceasing, can feel like a flunking grade to a tender conscience. The vague fear that we are failing the Christian life has once again been confirmed. He says, others of us struggle to see this call as anything other than an impossible ideal, perhaps attainable for pastors. It's not, by the way. But not for mothers with four children or businessmen with 60-hour work weeks. End quote. So what does pray without ceasing actually mean? When Paul says pray without ceasing, he doesn't mean all you do is talk to God as if real Christians do nothing but pray. Praying without ceasing does not require us to spend every hour on our knees. The same apostle, in the same letter, commands all sorts of other activities that would literally forbid prayer. Look, at, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Can't pray and do this. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Putting in a full day's work and working hard for your employer... And praying constantly is obviously, he, he, he's not meaning those to be two separate things. Pray without ceasing and put in a hard day's work. Or what about 1 Thessalonians 5.11? 
Encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. So when you spend time encouraging brothers and sisters in the Lord, you're not praying when you're doing that. You're encouraging when you're doing that. Or what about 1 Thessalonians 5.14? We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. When you're helping people, when you're serving people, when you're caring for people, you're not praying. So obviously, these are all activities that we do that are consistent with Paul's command to pray without ceasing. So what does pray without ceasing mean? Well, when Paul prays, pray always, or writes pray always, pray without ceasing, in all circumstances, he means to cast a net over everything we do. Along with joy and gratitude, prayer pervades our lives. Waking, sleeping, eating, working, serving, resting. We may not pray every moment, but we do, over time, bring prayer into all our moments. Okay? That's what we mean. We may not pray every moment, but we are seeking to bring prayer into all our moments. We may not walk with our heads always bowed, but we always walk with our hearts bowed. Always ready to pour out our heart to God. Again, Paul sets the example here in First Thessalonians. Look at chapter 1. He begins the letter. He's writing a letter. He's doing an activity. And he's praying without ceasing as he does it. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. We give thanks to God always for you all, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. You can almost see him as he's writing that. Oh, thank you, God, that they received the word. Oh, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. We see it again in chapter 3, verse 10. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see your face, you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So in the same way that a close relationship with a friend or a spouse requires a pattern of regular communication, so too our relationship with God requires a pattern of prayer, consistent prayer. As breathing sustains life in our physical bodies, so prayer sustains life in our souls. It's an ongoing thing. It's a continual thing. A pouring out of our hearts to God throughout the day kind of thing. Psalm 68, 62 verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. It involves turning every burden that we feel into a help me. And every pleasure that we feel into a thank you. And every temptation that we feel into a deliver me. And every opportunity for obedience we have to, to a strengthen me. Prayer is more than a slot in our schedule. It's a reflex of our hearts. It's the aroma of our day. When you're walking down the hall to comfort a crying baby, Lord, I need your help right now to be patient with this child the way you're patient with me. When you're walking into the cafeteria to eat before your next class, you say, Father, show me how to be a good friend to my classmates and especially those who don't know you. When you're walking into a workspace or a boardroom where the boss's boss is waiting for your presentation, you say, King Jesus, help me trust you right now to believe in the depth of my heart that you're in control and that what you think of me matters way more than what anyone else in this room thinks. See, praying without ceasing 
entails a lifestyle of prayer bringing all of you to all of God all the time. Why don't we pray more, though? Why don't we do this? Can I give you the very simple and very convicting answer that's true for me? We don't pray more because deep down, we really don't think it'll matter. That's why. That's why. We don't think it matters. We don't think it'll do much good. Our personal, cultural, and religious experiences have helped reinforce a belief that doing more tends to produce more than praying more. And it's a lie from hell. Doing more will never accomplish more than praying more. Never. So if we have to stop doing some stuff to pray more, we will. Because doing does not advance the kingdom if praying isn't a part of it. It doesn't mean that praying accomplishes the, advances the kingdom alone either. People can spend all their time in prayer meetings and be disobedient to the Lord. But that's not our problem, is it? That's not our default. Would that the Holy Spirit so moved upon our congregation that we had to raise up and say, Stop praying, people. Get to work. The Lord's got work for us to do, right? May he do that. But that's not our typical default. So as Bible-believing Christians, we officially affirm what the Bible teaches us about prayer, but we neglect it in practice because we don't functionally believe the Bible's teaching about prayer. We all agree in here right now, right? But what about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday? So the verse challenges us to make prayer a constant and consistent companion. Prayer is to be a regular habit. So how can we pray more? Well, if we really want to pray like the Bible teaches, we have to harness the Bible's motivation. God's promise of hearing us and answering and rewarding us. If we look at the context for every biblical command to pray, we see an incentive to do it. The Lord knows us. He knows that we're weak. He knows that we're lazy. He knows that we get in ruts. He knows how slow to learn we are, and he gives us constant motivation. So let me give us some motivation before we move on to the third point. Be constant in prayer, Romans 12, so that spiritual gifts and love will abound in the church. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, pray at all times in the spirit so that we will be protected from powerful satanic attack and the gospel will be proclaimed accurately and boldly. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, pray about everything in order to be relieved of troubling anxieties and allow the peace of God to guard your heart and mind. Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer for the sake of remaining spiritually alert and seeing the manifold grace of God that prompts thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 18, the very verses we're considered, considering this morning. Pray without ceasing in order there will be unity and love and appropriate submission and patience and joy in the church. Luke 18, 1 through 8, Always pray and not lose heart so that we receive what it is that we desperately want and need from God whose heart is to give his elect justice. I'm reminded of what Elizabeth Prentice wrote. Perhaps you know of her. 
The early sufferings of Elizabeth Payson Prentice were painful and prolonged. She struggled her entire life with insomnia and severe headaches that left her exhausted. She also endured the sorrow of loss. Two of her three children died in short succession. Two weeks apart, she said, Empty hands are worn out, exhausted body, unutterable longings to flee from a world that has so many sharp experiences. That's what she wrote in her journal. But she later wrote, One child and two green graves. This is God's gift to me. A bleeding, faint, broken heart. This is God's gift to me. Afterwards, the grieving mother's frail health was nearly destroyed. In the deep distress of her soul, she cried out, quote, Our home is broken up, our lives wrecked, our hopes shattered, our dreams dissolved. I don't think I can stand living for another moment. End quote. Yet during those dark and desperate days when her pains and losses led her to think that she would not want to live one more day, Elizabeth Payson Prentice never lost her hope in the love of God. In fact, during those very days, she began to write a hymn asking Jesus this. Once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest. Now thee alone I seek, give what is best. This all my prayer shall be, more love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee, more love to thee. Let sorrow do its work, sin, grief, and pain. Sweet are thy messengers, sweet their refrain. When they can sing with me, more love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee, more love to thee. She didn't write that on cushy beds of ease. She wrote that with a broken, bleeding heart because she's a Christian, and that's what Christians do. What Elizabeth Prentice found when she despaired of life itself was a love that's better than life. Later she wrote, To love Christ more is the deepest need, the constant cry of my soul. Out in the woods, on my bed, out driving, when I am happy and busy, and when I'm sad and idle, the whisper keeps going up for more love, more love, more love. Thirdly, thank always. Thank always. We see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I'm struck by how grateful Paul is in this letter, despite the challenges that he faced. In chapter 1, he's thankful because the Thessalonians' faith is being heard throughout the region. Yet, in chapter 2, he details the difficulty that it was in bringing the gospel to them. And yet, he counts it all worth it, and he's thankful And he knew the church was suffering and he got a report from Timothy that they were doing well in spite of their afflictions and he gives thanks for it. A Chinese man lived on the border of China and Mongolia. In that time, there were battles and wars between the two countries and this Chinese man had a beautiful horse. But one day, that horse jumped over the fence and went over the border into Mongolia. The Mongolians stole the horse. The Chinese man's friends came to him to console him. Oh, what terrible news, they said. He said, why do you think it's bad news? Maybe it's a good thing. After a couple of days, the horse came back to the man together with a stallion. 
the friends of this man came around and said, what great news. He says, why do you think it's great news? Maybe it's bad news. Later, while the Chinese man's son was riding the stallion trying to tame him, he fell off the horse and broke his legs. The friends came again. Oh, what terrible news. Again, the Chinese man said, why do you think it's bad news? Maybe it's a good thing. After a week, another big war broke out between China and Mongolia. A Chinese general came into town and took all the young men with him to fight in the war. All those young men died except for the son of the Chinese men. He couldn't go to war because of broken legs. The Chinese man told his friends, See, the things you thought were bad were actually good, and the things you thought were good were actually bad. Isn't that true for us? Listen, if, like Tim Keller says, if you knew everything that God knows, you'd ask for exactly what he gives. If you knew everything God knows, you'd ask for exactly what he gives. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. See, ultimately, we have two responses to trials. We have the Genesis 42.36 response or the Romans 8.28 response. Let me give you the Genesis 42.36 response. When Jacob is going through a great trial, he says, All this has come against me. It's a self-centered view. I'm the center of the universe. Everything's happening to me. But Romans 8.28 says that everything works together for good for those who love God. That picture puts God in the center. So somehow I know that even the bad things are working out for his glory and my ultimate joy in him. So the choice is clear, brothers and sisters. We can look at our situations and see bad things that are against us. Or we can look at our situations and see good things that God is working for us. Despair or gratitude, you choose. John and Al chose thankfulness. I was reading from a pastor, Scott Sauls, in Nashville, and he was sharing about his friend John, who's in his church. I'd like to share John's story with you. John lived a full and beautiful life as a faithful husband, a loving father, a true friend, a gifted artist, and a devoted servant of the church. But at an age that seemed way too young, John was diagnosed with ALS, a condition that incapacitated him physically, confined him to a wheelchair and breathing machines, and eventually took his life. Scott says, I would sometimes visit John in his home during his months of decline. For me, these times with John gave new meaning to Paul's reflection on his own suffering, that our outer self may be wasting away, but our inward self is being renewed day by day. John did not give in to despair as his body withered from disease. Rather, he faced his situation with remarkable joy, thankfulness, and poise. Though frustrated by the pains and losses associated with his disease, he didn't allow himself to be defined by them. Though he was in great pain... John never grew cynical. When he ate through a straw and food dripped down the side of his face, instead of cursing, he'd crack a joke. When his nurses and helpers arrived to treat his physical needs, instead of demanding that they do this or that, he invited them to join him for Bible study. When we went to his home to pastor him, he'd end up pastoring us. John's attitude and light, lightness of being, especially considering the suffering he had been given to endure, made such an impression on me that I finally asked him how he could face suffering with such an admirable poise. His simple and an immediate answer was this. Well, that's easy, Scott. I've been a Bible reader all my life. Somewhere along the way, I guess it sank in. 
You know, the old saying is true. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Scott shares another story, this is briefer, of a man named Al who was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He was young as well, and he faced his devastating news and the decline that would follow in a way very similar to John. Scott says, I'll never forget the day he and his wife Renee got the news. A couple of other pastors and I visited them that evening, and we were astounded by what Al said. When I first heard the news, Al told us, I wanted to ask, why me? But then it seemed that the better question to ask was, why not me? The Bible says that God loves to manifest his power through our weakness, so I pose that cancer will be an opportunity for his power to be manifested through me. On my second visit with Al, he was wearing a pair of brightly colored striped socks. When I asked him about them, he told me they were his happy socks, which he wore as a constant reminder of what is true, that God is a healer and death and sorrow and sickness will not ultimately win. We can have happy socks, too, because the Lord is our shepherd. Now, let me conclude with the following reminders to us and be uh, encouraged by the example of our brothers and sisters in Christ here that we've, that we've read about and also that we take to mind the things that we've considered. Now, I want to conclude by how. Okay, this... There's one thing to be instructed by examples, right, and, and to be provoked. And, uh, you know, but listen, telling you to rejoice and pray and thank isn't going to get it done, right? But what will get it done is the next verse, which I reminded us of on the beginning of this sermon, at the beginning. Look at verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Now, a similar passage to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is Ephesians chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. But Ephesians chapter 5 commands us to be filled with the Spirit. Singing to one another, praying. It's all there in the context. It's the same kind of stuff. Giving thanks, being grateful. So my question is, how do you obey a passive verb? Be filled with the Spirit. Okay, that's a command. It's not an option. And it's plural. It's all y'all. All y'all be filled with the Spirit. It's not a privilege that's reserved for a few, a unique experience for particularly exceptional Christians or some unreachable reachable standard. It's also present tense. Keep on being continually filled, all y'all. And it's in the passive voice. It's something we can't do. <laughs> It's completely outside of our control. And here is the wonderful, beautiful mystery of the Christian life. Paul tells us to be filled with the Spirit, and we nod in agreement. But how do we do that? Well, I want you to think of a sailboat. All right, this is the analogy that's most helpful to me. How do you catch the wind on a sailboat? You have to adjust the mast to the direction the wind is blowing. But can you get the sailboat to move unless the wind is blowing? No. That's how we live the Christian life. That's how we grow in rejoicing and praying and thanking. See, catching the wind on a sailboat is clearly an experience. It's outside of our control, but it's also a habit. Right? If you don't put the sail up, pull the main sheet fast, or adjust the jib, you're not going anywhere, even if the wind's blowing powerfully. 
So sailing in that sense is the art of attentive responsiveness to an external power. And that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. You are seeking to be attentively responsive to an external power. So it's a both and. We, re- we re- rely entirely on the Spirit's immeasurable power rather than our own strength to get us anywhere. But we have to do things. And you know the things we have to do? Rejoice when we don't feel like it. Pray when we don't feel like it. And give thanks as a discipline. And the Spirit will begin flooding your life. Flooding your life. See, so it's a discipline and it's an experience. And Paul holds those two things together here. So like the Christian life as a whole, being filled with the Spirit is both passive and active. We work and God works. And it's as we work that God will be accomplishing his work. So take encouragement. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And if you know he will, and you know he is, then let's get after rejoicing and praying and giving thanks always. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to you that you give us commands like these. <laughs> this, is, this is a God who is great and glorious and gracious. To say things like, it is the will of God that you talk to me. I want to hear from you. I want a relationship with you. It is the will of God that you thank me for all the abundant blessings I am pouring out into your life and all the difficulties I am working together for your everlasting good. And it is a command that you be happy in me. (laughs) Lord, you are so good to us. You are so kind. You've opened up your very heart to us and welcomed us in. How can we not thank you? How can we not rejoice? How can we not pray? How can we not give thanks when this is the God who's on the other end of all of that? So we rejoice in you now, we pray to you now, and we give thanks to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and we'll respond.